Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. Today, I'm grateful to welcome someone to the podcast with the longest intro to any episode I have ever recorded. Andy Torbett is an underwater explorer, professional cave diver, Team GB skydiver, freediver climber, filmmaker, TV presenter, author, and he has also been a stunt double in the 2021 Bond movie, No Time to Die. During this episode, we explore Andy's incredible life and career to date. Let's get into it. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Well, I, I didn't really have much choice. If I said no, being that my for, for, for complete transparency, we should tell the the listening audience that you you're currently my coach. So if I'd said no, you'd have just beasted me in the weeks to come. So that's very true. Yeah. <laughs> Not that you you probably do it anyway, but um, it's all it's all good. It's all good. Um, okay, so most of the time I start this podcast, I always like to dive into people's past. I'm very waved on a lot of podcasts previous to this I do feel it is relevant to talk about your early years and why you got into the current challenges but I wanted to hit you with well basically go straight into the deep end what are the three most challenging experiences you've had so far Ooh, that's pretty hard well yeah, I mean again I, I'm always one to start expanding these these bullet point questions into something that probably they're not meant to be for a podcast but it depends on on how we define it and also you'd have to sit down and really hard think because there's probably things from my childhood that I didn't think of that big a deal like you know my parents divorced for example but that I don't really think affected me then not nor now but perhaps in a, in a in a ways that I don't understand it did but I mean from a sort of superficial point of view, certainly um, I had quite a bad back injury when I was in the Marines. Um, and, I, you know, and that I think affected me not just physically clearly, but um, I think mentally a lot more than than I think I understood at the time. Um, I mean, from a physical point of view, probably one of the hardest things. I've done, I've done a few of the military sort of arduous courses, um, things like the dive course and P Company and, and things like that. They were all pretty pretty cheeky but again I would always argue that they're, they're, they're mentally harder than they are you, you know I was not the fittest person peak up for example those guys who are fitter than me that didn't pass that, that that quit um I think you know stubbornness in the face of the blindingly obvious can be quite a handy uh handy character trait sometimes um and I think the certain challenges now actually to bring it bring it bang up to date you know I am 47 I know, I know, I don't look at it, thanks so much. Um, but, but uh, you know, and I've picked up a lot of injuries from the forces and from my work doing some adventure projects and stunts. You know, I've got a lot of injuries, some some sort of short term, uh, some pretty chronic. Um, and as I get older, I think it's it's much, much harder just to stay where you are and even more so make improvements. And that's not to say age is an excuse because you can still make those improvements. Um, but I think the effort required... And it's not so much like, oh, you need to beast yourself more in the gym. It's effort more like putting the time into, frankly, what I find the boring stuff. You'll argue that we not, but like the stretching and the, you know, those sort of 
those sort of physio exercises to stabilize the joints or to increase range of movements, um, which are much less fun than bicep curls and pull-ups. But also diet-wise, and it's not that I'm eating boring food, I eat well, but, you know, I have to drink much, much, much less. I mean, I really take alcohol now, you know, try to cut out dairy and gluten and seed oils and just be a little bit more, I have to put a bit more time and effort into thinking about what I eat and what I don't eat in order to still maintain the level of physical ability and robustness that I need to do sort of both parts of my jobs, both within the stunt world, but also within the kind of adventure and exploration world. It's funny that's because I see it in a lot of people that those little habits built up or stacked up are the things that make quite a big difference. Mm. And it's probably like when you're preparing kit for an expedition where if you don't do all these little things, when it comes to the crunch, something's going to impact on you big time. And it's normally the things you neglect that eventually catch up. And I believe diet is definitely one of those things that can impact. And I think a lot of people, when they move into, when they're looking at things like expeditions and adventure training, they must be thinking, okay, everything's so focused on the sharp end, what they see in front of them, but actually thinking, well, what, what prep goes into these things? What happens at the back end? And that leads well into my next question, actually. When you're preparing for the challenges you are, and obviously we'll go into more depth about exactly what these are and how they unfold, how long will you spend preparing, whether it's physically, mentally, or from an equipment standpoint for certain challenges? And and do they vary between the different disciplines you have? Yeah, it certainly varies. Not so much between the disciplines, but between the sort of projects and, you know, how technical or how arduous they are i mean from a physical point of view it requires well you can either requires no prep or an infinite amount of prep in the sense that because again my work is ongoing i don't i don't have a peak season like a sports person does or or a a, a show like a bodybuilder or aesthetics kind of competitor would have you know i am called upon in the stunt world to do you know, I could get a phone call today and go, right, you jump up a plane tomorrow. And then from the, the adventure project's point of view, be it for documentaries, which I might have a bit more time to lead up, or my own projects, um, you know, clearly I, I plan them, but I could be planning them for next week because, like, the, for this week, for example, this week the weather's terrible. I was hoping to go cave diving uh, this week, but the weather's been really bad. So I might try it on Friday if the weather's good. It might have to postpone to weeks and months ahead. So I have to basically maintain the same physique and sort of physical abilities 12 months a year. So I, I know there's people out there, you know, we're talking about social media, and there's people out there who will post throughout the year a set of photographs that are taken on a day when they look their best. Um, but that's one thing when it comes to so now social media, I'll, I'll post really cool pictures. And it's not what I'm doing that day. It's, you know, and I'll try and make the point, this is from last year's project or this is from whatever. But if you see me training in my gym at home, that's me on that day and the reason that i look the same the only thing i'll change throughout the year is you know i'll go from pale blue in the winter to uh to sort of white in the summer <laughs> as a as a highlander that's bit that's bit as brown as i go but um you know i might get the old squatty tar you know for like tan from the from the, from the t-shirt from the, from, yeah from the, from the elbow down so from a physical point of view it's it's a case of you know you could, you could argue that so the prep is either zero or the prep is is you know going on every single day throughout the year and then from a sort of psychological point of view i 
that isn't specifically something I put any time and effort into because the psychology takes care of itself in the sense that if I have put the effort into planning it well, uh, you know, considering all the risks, mitigating or eliminating or creating redundancy for those risks, I put the time and effort into prepping my kit, both the choice and then, you know, make sure it's working properly. And then put the prep into either gaining the skills or refreshing the skills or maintaining the skills that I would need to either do the job and or keep myself alive. Then if I've done all that, then the psychological part of it for me anyway, I'm like, cool, I'm happy, I'm good. I'm good, you know, I've got the right plan, the right kit, I'm physically prepared, and therefore that all makes me mentally prepared. Um, you know, I, I know we'll speak about more specifics, but one of the things I do is cave diving, and I always say, if you're scared before a cave dive, don't go cave diving. You know, that's that's a key, it's a key sort of combat indicator that that you haven't prepared properly. If you're still if you're still really worried before you get in the water, go and do it. You you're probably just uh given everyone the excuse to go, right, that's it. Nope, not doing it because I'm scared. Because I think there's that there's that feeling around cave diving, isn't there, where it was I think for a lot of people, the thought of stepping out of a warm home into a cold wet dark cave in confined spaces probably sounds like most people's worst nightmare mm. and i was actually going to ask you how you said about weather affecting that how, how would weather affect that scenario or going into a cave how would that make a difference and what is the experience like so yeah i mean well i'll deal with first part first it's very simple um you know uh, when you're cave diving uh, effectively apart from the odd sea cave most most caves uh, are, are fresh like underwater caves are fresh water and what they basically are is an underwater river that's all they are um so or, or even i mean think of it as a, as a drain you know like the pipes that run the road that take the, the rainwater away so just like a river if it rains really heavily that w- river becomes like a white water torrent um, you know, I'm sure we've both seen the Dart down in Devon, you know, which is beautiful little tranquil river in the summer. And if it rains hard, it's a white water, you know, like river of death. Same in a cave. So in Wales right now, um, it's been heavy rain for weeks. So a lot of the caves that they'll be that they'll be pumping out water. So you may there may, there may be a slight flow that you can swim against normally, but if that is, you know, just pumping out there's no way on god's earth you're even going to get in or you're going to be swept away depending on which which sort of where in the flow you enter the cave so um yeah as a, as a cave diver you have to be aware of the weather not so much the temperature and lots of stuff that doesn't matter with the summer or winter but it's a bit rainfall uh, because it's about the state of that inverted commas kind of underground river then the experience itself well i agree that as you say cold dark underwater alien environment confined claustrophobic space some often i'm on my own and there's reasons we solo cave diving how solo cave diving can be more safe than other forms um and it is arguably one of the most sort of psychologically oppressive environments to be in but it is also akin to being in space uh, especially so when you need some of these big because everything's cave diving is, is super cramped the pictures of us crawling through like space squeezing through these tiny gaps which we do sometimes but by the same token there are caves some in the UK not that many but, but abroad like in France where they're huge these tunnels are huge you can drive a bus down them um, you know often it's limestone that's one of the most common uh, types of bedrock that these solution caves form in so they're white rocks <clears throat> so it does feel like you are you know 
on the moon. You're in space. You're floating um, uh, weightlessly through these kind of alien environments. Um, I, I, un, unlike being in space, you are wholly reliant on the equipment to keep you alive. You know, we're not as human beings. We are not designed to be to be underwater. Um, which is why they use underwater environments as a sort of terrestrial analog uh, for for space when they're training astronauts. But it is like being in, going to space. You can imagine it's the same sort of feeling of 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 kind of exploration and other surreal other worlds of adventure. Um, and it's also true because of people say, "Oh, you're an explorer," and I say, "Well, I'm an underwater explorer." I will I will I will caveat that because um, you know these days to be a sort of terrestrial explorer is pretty hard you know, with google maps and, and lidar and all these sort of amazing things we've got it's pretty hard to find corners there are, there are some don't get me wrong there are some remote areas that are a bit um, of the earth that are still unseen by by the mark one human eyeball but if you're willing to go underwater and that's in the seas the lakes the rivers the oceans but especially underwater and underground um there are it is very very easy to be an explorer We've been working on a project in a place called Otter Hole, which is a cave system that runs under Chepstow Racecourse, and I can pretty much see it from my house. You know, it's a few miles from where I live, and um, it's been they've been investigating since the sixties. But last year, we still pushed a new section um, underwater because you know, so you can still you can still do genuine old school exploration. I.e., go somewhere that no human being has ever been before. And that's right on the English Welsh border, just off the M4. You know what I mean? So um, there are there are these locations. I think a lot of people see these caves as very tiny spaces. I think obviously we know that on social media, those type of images get a lot of traction. If you see someone crawling between a very tiny seam mm. between two rocks, I mean that was my experience when I I needed I needed it once. Uh, just when I was in the Marines, we did. Uh, I think it was up in Wales, and you probably know the area very well, but. I just remember going into a very small cave and then working through uh, a couple of different seams that were felt quite small at the time. Definitely involved my head on one side and shimmying through, but I kind of liked it. I thought it was quite a nice experience in some ways, which I, I didn't I didn't anticipate me feeling that way. I think there was a little bit of nervousness or fear going into it, but then once you're in, it was like, okay, I'm just going to look at the next section, next section, and so on. Is that how you feel when you're in there? Is it like bit by bit? As opposed to the whole thing, yeah, definitely. The um, so as I say, I mean, people want to look at how the how good the caves can get. They should like Google the cenotes in Mexico. Um, these are the caves in Mexico that are just huge things, you know, and the, and the, the visibility is gin clear, and if they're lit properly by professionals, it does look like you are in space. The UK tends to be a bit smaller and and pretty muddy, so not that that great underwater visibility. But there we go. Very un Hollywood. Yeah, the the, the, the thing about um. Like people go, you worry about getting stuck. If you can, if you can get in, you can get out. Like you can always back out. You know, you never get truly stuck on on in a cave. And the other thing is that I find cave diving in small places easier than caving because you can your gravity isn't, you know, isn't hold you in place. And it's much easier to sort of float through these little spaces. Um, clearly, you know, breathing is is um, is a bit more of a concern. You have a limited supply of of gas or, or or whatever it is you're using, so you've got limited time. But um, I do find cave diving can often be less physically arduous than caving. And to be fair, I don't. Well, I do cave, but I only cave to get to dive sites. And I've done a lot of. I've done some pretty pretty hardcore caving, but um, I'm always carrying dive kit 
always kind of part of, part, we did it, we did a rescue in Wales. So I'm part of a, a, a few different rescue teams actually. One's a cave rescue team, and we did a, a rescue uh, in Wales. And it wasn't just me. Oh God, there was just like 140 of us because rescuing somebody from a cave can be quite a big operation. Anyway, point being is, I was in there and I was just in my caving kit, uh, apart from like a, some 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 snacks and water and some some a little light med kit. I was like, buddy, this is amazing. The guy with me who was also, he's also a cave diver, was like, well, well, yeah, because you never come in a cave without humping like really heavy dive kits. So, of course, you're like, oh, this is quite nice, actually, you know. It's like, well, I don't know why this is so easy. He's like, well, because you're always carrying like, you know, 20 kilos of, of steel bottles and other bits and pieces. Um, certainly, I, I think cave diving is, is a bit easier than um, physically than, than caving, dry caving anyway. It's good to distinguish between the two because my perception always was that you're sort of going into experience both when you are doing these things that you fundamentally you don't know what you're going to experience. But I suppose that only relates to the areas you're exploring that haven't been looked at, which actually led to my next question. So how do you select what you're going to look at or explore? Is it because maybe it hasn't been explored yet or just because there's areas of that cave that haven't yet been sort of looked at. And the sort of the second question is, if you were to look at something that you think, I'd like to explore that, are there diagnostic tools you can look at prior to entering the cave? So is there imaging and stuff that gives you a little bit of an insight as to what's ahead of you? The the only really information you'll have is people have been there before you. Um, so for example, you get dry cavers, who will dry, you know, go through the cave and they'll get to a sump. So a sump is an underwater uh, cave. So they'll get to the start of a sump. I, well, to them, all they perceive is it's a pool. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a the, the, the cave becomes full of water. Um, and they'll stop there, but they'll mark it on the map. So, you know, you will see that. And then no, that, that sump could be three feet long or three miles long. You don't know. Um, but that's one way of finding these sumps, these entrances. Um, you can also chat to them about how that dry cave was because then you're thinking, right, how big an epic is going to be dragging dive kit through all this? Um, or you'll, you'll, there's a lot of, like, like people do try and post stuff uh, either in the journals or in the magazines or online. Um, you know, they'll, 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 they'll do underwater cave diving exploration and then post as far as they've gone. And often there'll be a question mark at the end if, if it continues on. Um, because either the scale of the equipment just just you know they couldn't get it. it was going too deep or it was going too long or for whatever reason they, they decided to turn back um and then you know finally you can go out and explore areas that you think okay there's a lot of caves in this area maybe there's more um like the cast landscapes it's like limestone landscapes that are full of Full of caves and underwater caves that we know of already so the chances are if there's this many there'll be more i'm sure there's caves in in wales uh, and in the mendips you know these high darbish these high limestone areas that have never been discovered because the entrance has been closed you know you, you could it'd be just it's caved in or it's it's been sort of full of earth or whatever it is um there'll be a, there's networks of, of cave systems under our feet in the uk that no one knows is there and yes, you could do some sort of ground penetrating radar, but without knowing exactly where they are, you're going to spend a lot of time and money. You need to have, you know, a lot of money to do that. So no, normally it goes on that. It goes on or, or local. A friend of mine uh, did a lot of work out in Madagascar, um, 
get completely unexplored caves but he just asked locals and the local guys oh we get our water from this this spring that just pops up in the middle of nowhere middle of the you know middle of the plains and you know you don't uh, you don't just or it's unusual especially in a limestone landscape to get that so he was like well that that must be the resurgence of, of, a, of a cave system you know that's the it's an underground river basically pops up and becomes on the surface um and it's even stuff like one of the one of the most famous caves in France, uh, Emergence de Rissel, was discovered by a farmer basically because it's a high a lot, a lot of cave diving goes on, and he he was chatting some cave divers. He goes, "Oh, I, I think there's something in my river." Go, well, why do you think that? And he says, "Because when it's been heavily raining, there's like a mushroom in the middle of the river, like a big like you know like this like as a water jet in the middle of the river almost, where there's been a lot of rain." So the guys went and jumped in this river. And what they found on the riverbed was a hole, and they dived in the hole, and it led into this kilometres-long, you know, underwater passage. Basically, there was two rivers flowing together, and then eventually the underground one kind of came up and joined. Um, but, and, and that's the trickiest part, I'd say. That's the trickiest part is is finding and choosing your project. Like, going and get the kit going and dive in it is almost the easy bit. It's, it's the finding the projects that they've got. And we are searching around for, for one for this year and next year. Um, I had one, I was going to join a team, uh, a friend of mine from Greece and an Italian team in northern Italy, um, brand new cave system in a, in a national park. Um, they'd found the entrance, but uh, that's all been done. And then over the winter, there's a massive flood and it's caved in. And because it's a national park, they don't want to mess, they don't want to you know, remove any of the rubble or, or dynamite, any of that stuff. So um, that has been basically kibosh so i'm not looking for something else to do but i personally love i love camping on the ground so i love the the, the, the trips where we will do big dives in we did one in france last year myself and uh, my friend chris joe we we sort of five six hour cave dive in so you're you're swimming well not swimming actually we've got dpvs diver propulsion vehicles little sort of scoot underwater scooters that pull us along um for like five six hours um that includes all the decompression and then we pop up in this chamber this dry chamber that's completely shut off from the rest of the world we've got a dry tube full of camping kit get out we camp overnight and then continue on um that's probably kind of you know expeditionary um sort of cave diving projects you said about the cave caving in that was actually one of my next questions regarding the safety of this, I know you get asked this in a lot of podcasts, but I think it's one of the big questions for people is that if you're between two, well, but underneath a massive rock or a lot of weight, I mean, millions and millions of tons of something, say it's limestone, how safe is the, whether it's caving or cave diving? And I mean, is that rock, a collapse is common or are they quite rare? Not in caves. Caves have been worn out you know, through the passage of water, natural process. Not not to say that they don't collapse, they they do, but the collapse is like, you know, once in every hundred or thousand, you know, you see you see some rubble on the floor, but um it, it, it it's a very, very rare occurrence. But I mean like astronomically rare. So you'd have to be it would just be your time if you got caught in a collapse, you know, inside a inside a cave. Um they're they're actually pretty stable environments and and, and that's the thing about about, about cave diving. It's it's binary in the sense that you either get out or you don't. No one gets injured cave diving, really. Um, you might get injured 
caving, dry caving, but cave diving, no one gets injured. Either goes well and you come out, it goes badly, but you fix it and you come out. It goes badly, you don't fix it, you don't come out. That's that's kind of, you know, it's not like climbing or, or, or skydiving, which I do a lot of as well. Um, you know, you can it can go badly wrong and you can twist an ankle, you can break a leg, break your back, be in a coma, die. There's a graduation of how serious the, the kind of outcome can be. Whereas in cave diving, it's it's either good or it's very bad. That's, that's your kind of options. But but the cave, the environment itself is actually quite stable and predictable. We spoke about the, the rain and how that affects the flow. But apart from that, you know, you kind of know what you're going to get. Um, so it is it is quite a and and it because it's a kind of it's fairly cut off from the rest of the world. It's not really apart from rain influenced much by outside factors. You know, people get into trouble cave diving because of something they did or did not do. It's very 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 rarely the fault of the cave. Now it's worth saying that mines are slightly different. So we do we do dive cave dive about commas in in flooded mine systems. So old abandoned mines, some can be you know twenty years old, some can be one hundred and fifty years old. These 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 man made like caves, if you will, the mine systems. They're slightly different because they they were clearly carved out by by humans. Um, so the whereas a river will 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 pick out the unstable parts and wear them away because it's looking for the easiest flow. A mine is dictated by where the with a sort of ore, whatever that after is, the way it goes. Um, as well as the older ones, they'll be shored up and stabilised by, um, you know, wood, wooden pillars or shafts, which clearly rot, as well as that. The ones from, like, you know, 100 years ago, even if those wooden sort of supports are still in place, health and safety was, was not really much of a thing back then. So you've got to be a little bit careful, uh, or certainly more careful, I'd say, in mines than you do in... in uh, in caves and there's things you can do so often when i'm cave diving i'll be using a rebreather so a rebreather is the same technology that they use in, in, in space for spacewalks and it basically recycles one breath there's a lot of advantages to it uh, but one of them is that it produces no bubbles um, which is great because bubbles hitting the ceiling can actually cause things to to sort of um, you know collapse because the, the water might be supporting the rock, whereas a lot of bubbles, it then they then get an air gap, and the air is not as supportive as the bubbles. Uh, sorry, as the water, so the the the, the roof can can sort of start to cave in. Which That's is- crazy. Sorry to interject there, mm. Andy. That's crazy to think that some bubbles could destabilize s- somewhere. I suppose if it is a mine and it's been artificially made to look the way it is, then it, it could literally, as you said, be bouncing on anything that's remaining in there, or maybe the reason they closed it altogether. Yeah, possibly. Most most ones in the UK, actually, ones I've dived abroad were closed for you know financial reasons. That's that I've, I've, uh, I don't think I've come across many that have been cl- closed because of of health and safety issues. Because I say, you know, the ones from the nineteen thirties, forties, fifties, or, or even the the nineteenth century, you know, the, the companies that ran these weren't that concerned about it collapsing on miners' heads. Um, <laughs> to be honest even you know so what my my dad i shouldn't laugh because it's not well it's, it's not, not funny it's not... all right I, I i can laugh because i'm from minor stock i'm allowed to laugh it's okay it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's still it's pc for me to laugh because like my, you know, my dad said the family were all miners coal miners in scotland before uh before all the mines were closed down in the 80s and even then you know it was it was still still a dodgy place to be working um and that's in the 1980s funny enough we went up to where my great be my great uncle uh, was in the mines around Newcastle, mm-hmm. so that that's part of my history as well. And we've got images of when they're in like eighteen-inch seams for 
whatever it might be, eight to 10 hours every single day. Yeah. Which is insane. It's crazy. Hardcore. I had one uh, message a few years ago from a guy who just got into cave diving in the UK. He's got, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to start diving in some coal mines up in up in Scotland, you know, because no one's ever investigated these these dives in these flooded coal mines, these old coal mines. Um, have you got any advice? And I was like, look, mate, I'm not the fun police, okay? This is not, I don't try this at home. This is, you do whatever you want. However, a couple of things. One, um, you know, a coal mine underwater is going to be nil vis. It's going to be like try to dive in black coffee. <laughs> Secondly, coal mines that were being worked by coal miners were notoriously unstable then. So thirdly, consider you've got some of the, the world's best kind of cave divers in the UK, and none of them are diving in coal mines. What does that tell you? There's a few indicators there. <laughs> you you do you see fit, but personally, I don't dive in coal mines, and that's why not. I never heard back from him. I don't know if that's a good <laughs> thing or a bad thing, but I never heard back. Yeah. So hopefully he... But then again, I'd ne- I've never heard because you would hear because it's quite a small community. You'd hear if someone had died diving a coal mine. So um, presumably, he he sort of he got the point. Yeah. Well, that that was actually something that I thought about when you were talking about navigating through cave systems. Is that in the fire service, one of the big things we'd always look for is you'd come out, you'd say you've been into a a room that's been on fire or a house. You come back, especially if you didn't know the layout, maybe it's, let's say a factory because it's a little bit harder to navigate and you would draw roughly what you saw and you'd obviously give all the reference points. So like 10 steps forwards, I don't know, door handle on the left-hand side, move 10 steps beyond this and on your left, you'll see a room that we didn't get into. Is that very similar in regards to diving as well, especially when visibility is quite poor? Yeah, it's it's slightly different in the sense that we're not coming out and then relaying that to the team so it's the same principle but but obviously a different technique because you you're 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 sort of going in probably for quite r- relatively short periods you know like like hours and hours or days and days coming out and then immediately having to relay that to a team of people because clearly time is of the, of the essence in what you do um so we do it in a slightly sort of longer term scale so in the way in we'll lay line so we'll take literally a reel of line in with us uh, and that's like your kind of you know, Ariadne's thread to find your way back out of the maze so no matter how bad the visibility is you, you know you should never lose the line because then you can you still get out um and if we're surveying we'll have like markers maybe every what three five ten meters little knots along that line so we can we know so when we come out we we've got a rough idea of how far the cave goes and then if you're doing a more deliberate survey you can then take bearings so you do, you know, you measure the length of each section of line you've laid, because it's going to be a straight line, and take a bearing on that, and then you can start building up a a, um, a map of the area. So, for me, it tends to be done in phases. If you're if you're solo diving, you lay the line, and then you come out, and the next dive, you might then go and measure and get a bearing on that line. Or if it's a two man exploration team, the first guy will will run the line and belay it. So he'll tie it off at anchor points where he can along the way to keep it tight. Um, and then the next guy up will count the knots and take bearings at any 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 sort of change of directions. Although there are tools now, you know, obviously technology is is it's, it's catching up. It's not amazing because there's little incentive. You know, there's there's not exactly a huge amount of money in, in cave diving exploration. But um, little little sort of advice you can put on the line and run it along, and it in there it has um, it will mostly measure the amount of line that passes through when it changes direction. It's got sort of a compass in there and a gyroscope so it can it can measure sort of up a, a, a 
declinator, but basically whether it matches, whether you go up or down as well as north, south, east, and west. Um, because the idea is is to is to map it and bring it out. Because if you're not sort of bringing back, if you're not recording anything, then it's not it's not exploration. It's just you're just messing about. It's funny when you talk about sort of these methods because I, I know obviously within the military we're always taught is you're always reading the ground, your map, your basic tools that are in, they're removed from technology a little bit because everyone's so dependent on technology and it just seems to be the default for so many people. But if that fails, there's almost this uh, void where people don't know how to interact with the environment without these things in place. And when we used to go back to sort of the factory concept, one of the drills, which fortunately I never actually had to use, um, we used it once actually on one one exercise, which then actually, funny enough, the the incident followed shortly after was moving into a industrial unit, and where the knots are tied, there would basically be two the legs you'd call it. So the legs would dictate one direction, and the knots would uh, dictate the the other direction. So it was a very simple tool just to navigate in and out. But it makes sense that someone would develop something where you could just scan up the line and back again. Yeah, it just makes it makes it makes the the, the sort of measurement of the exploration much much quicker and more efficient but as you say you still even even when you've laying a line you still look at your environment um, and go okay tunnel left tunnel right um okay it's getting narrower here i'm passing over a big rubble field oh it's a sandbank on my left um which will help to navigate you in the way out in case you do lose the line but also as a psychological crutch quite frankly which i'm a big fan of um you know if you don't know how far you are from the exit and it's no visibility and you're like, Oh my God, you know, you, it, time and distance can be hard to, um, to, to sort of appreciate when, when it is nil visibility, you know, you can't see a thing, but if you know roughly halfway back to the exit, there's a big sandbank on the, on the left and the way and you pass it on the right, you can, okay, cool, cool. So I'm about halfway. I know where I am. I'm, I'm going the right direction. That's a nice psychological crutch just to know where you are and go, okay, cool. That's, that's where I'm, I'm, progressing so you know i still take note of you know, what's what's kind of happening around me as i go in and go out and things like compass bearings and all that sort of behavior just again because you get completely turned around and you get back to the line and we will mark the line to show the, where the exit is but not you know maybe every in every junction we cut hundred meters so if you get back to the line and you're like right i came in pointing north so as long as i get to the line and point south going to get out you know so uh getting back to those basics are, are definitely and like you said there's a, there's a i think we have become technology's great i'm not going to start going oh technology's terrible um it, it's a great tool but we can become overly reliant on it you know met people that i know who you know follow a sat nav and they'll follow a sat nav for three or four days i've seen it at the drop zone with a new drop zone we're driving their tail to the drop zone and then you know, on day three, you talk to someone, they're like, oh, I don't know what that is. You go, well, it's just next to drops. And they've got no idea because we formed the sat-nav. And without the sat-nav, even after three or four days of driving that same route there and back, they could not do it on their own. And you're like, mate, you need to just get a bit of an appreciation for what's going on around you. That extends to everything in life, I agree, is that you see so many people with their head and their phone moving around life and not noticing the details. They will amplify themselves at speed. And that really, when you're looking at things like skydiving, I'm sure that applies as well. If you're not aware of what's going on around you, then it could potentially be fatal. Is that something, but is that correct in what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, there's an expression used by the, by the NASA astronauts, it's sweat the small stuff. Um, 
and the theory being is, you know, the the big obvious disasters tend not to happen because they're big and obvious and they're taken care of. You know, um, it's the little things that can lead to a cascade of of problems, which still ultimately lead to you. You know, normal a lot of these incidents because I, I do study incidents both in diving and in the skydiving um, to to learn from you know where mistakes were made. And therefore, either to change what I do or to be like, okay, to be reassured that okay, that that probably won't happen to me because I don't, I don't operate like that. Um, and often it's a, it's, it's the start of the the instant pit, you know, and then you slip into it, and then you slip in a bit further, and before you know, you're falling and you can't you can't climb back out. Um, and I've I've you know I've turned back from stuff before. I've been like, all oh, right, you know, I've got three bits of kit, and oh shit, one one's broken. It'll be fine. I don't really need it. It'll be fine. I'm thinking, okay. And I always think about this. I'm now reading the incident report, and it says, you know, he died. What happened first? Well, one of his hoses wasn't working, but he cracked it. I'm like, what? Why would you? Why would you crack on at that point? Why would you do that? You know. So I'm almost trying to assess it as if I'm looking at it with hindsight. I'm reading the incident report, thinking, what an idiot! What are you doing? So, and I think that comes from. When I was a kid growing up in the Highlands, often the news would be um, the, the the mountain rescue the, on the the mountain rescue reports. You know, people got up at the mountains in like flip flops and jeans. You know, in the winter, winter, and you'd be like, "What are you doing, you idiot?" So I think it's always a thing that I'm. I don't, you know, you do want to die looking like an idiot to do something really stupid. So, um, so it's and 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 never underestimate your own your own potential to be an absolute idiot. So I still do all my checks when I'm solo. I would do body checks if I'm not, and with skydiving. We do flight line checks where you know somebody somebody else will check you over, check your your automatic open devices on, check your handles, check your leg loops are all or straps are all done up properly. You've got your helmet, you've got altimeter at zero, and all these are very really basic things. Now, I think by the letter of the law, um, after a certain point of experience and qualification, you don't need to be checked um, before you get in the plane. Um, and the, the reason that I'm you think that he should know this. I'm not sure that if it's the letter of the law or not, because no one does that. Like literally every single person gets checked. You know, I've got like almost one and a half thousand jumps. And my main skydiving partner, he's a professional full time and he's got like 5,000 jumps. And we still check each other over. We still check each other over because, and then I get the plane and I, you know, at 6,000 feet, again, I'll check, I'll start my shoelaces and I'll check myself all the way up. Um, Even that my helmet closes and, you know, that's my, my and it opens and all that sort of stuff and then again at twelve thousand feet and then you know i'm at the door at 15 and it's good to see because i think some of the the more junior guys will look at us and go all right they're they're still doing it so yeah i'd say that it is those little things that can and it's not so much the little things like oh my, my reserve's gonna fail or, or i see any of the big cash or like things it's the little things that become an embuggerance that leads you to take your mind off the important things. So it's little, I think from a physical point of view, it's like, you know, you get, you put on a different pair of socks for a, for like, you know, for a yomp or a tab, you know, so for the, for the non-military speak people out there, that's when you're sort of moving at speed across the hills uh, in full kit, carrying a bag and kind of a big rucksack. Um, and you put on a different pair of socks and it's just a bit uncomfortable your feet get a little bit of a blister blister a blister is nothing but that blister throws your gait off so 20 miles later your knee and your hip are on fire and you can't operate so i think from a psychological point of view it's the same with with, with cave diving with skydiving a lot of these things in that the little things can can focus your mind where it shouldn't be 
and therefore when bad things happen you're not you're not in a place and again you can see some instances you see people the shoelaces are not done up or, or, or whatever it is and they jump out of a plane and they realise it and they're all like basically like sort of flapping because that that something's wrong. It's a minor thing. It doesn't really matter. But it's causing them to be in a bad place mentally and that causes bigger issues. Because then they, they lose altitude awareness, you know, because they're too busy concentrating on their shoelace, which actually doesn't matter. Shoe, what's the worst case scenario? Your shoe falls off. Who cares? But they focus on that and it, 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 at pool height, they don't pull a parachute because they're too busy focusing on their bloody shoelace and that's an issue yeah i feel sorry for the person that gets that shoe on the head though <laughs> that's gonna yeah well <laughs> i was gonna chafe a bit um <laughs> it that reminds me very much about even for people being at home i i don't know for for all the people listening that work from home and i'm sure there's many is that the way i see the environment is it needs to be those details like a clean house, a clean environment around your workspace, that's all going to make a big difference when it comes to concentration and focusing on the stuff that matters. Because it, that to me, uh, in a military environment, again, or, or looking at public services, things like the buddy buddy check prior to moving into a building, you'd always, always do that. Even if someone's screaming in that building that they need help, the worst thing you could do is move into that scenario with a little bit of skin exposed with no fire hood on because you're going to get burnt. You're going to be useless for the the next thing. I suppose from a rescue standpoint, that's also very important with like mountain rescue. Yeah. We, we, um, it's all about elimination of distractions when you're doing the important bits, like you say, from whether it's, it's at home. Um, it's what's why I find it easy to be disciplined when I'm away from home, living in like a, you know, hotel room because I have one bag and I have, you know, no wife and kids which are a distraction because I, I, I want to spend time with them. So my kids are like, let's go to the gym in the morning. I'm like, yeah, cool, let's go. Like they'll interrupt my training session, which I'm happy they do. So I then play with them. So there's no criticism of them. It's, it's me, but it is easier to be disciplined when you have, when life is simpler, you've got one bag you have to, up in the morning, right? I'm going to wear that because that's all I've got. And then as an extension of what you said about those distractions, that person inside the burning building screaming, yes, that's the mission and that's the priority, but actually it's in the, in the point where it comes to the body body checks it's a distraction because you, you know like the rescue teams we work in um it is you know you look the number one is you look after yourself then you look after the team then you look after the casualty they're clearly the military it's slightly different the, the, or there can be a difference perhaps the mission takes actually higher priority than the the welfare the health the, the survival of you and the team but in rescues um you know be it mountain rescue, cave rescue, cave diving rescue, whatever. Um, that's the kind of ethos, isn't it, right? Your first priority is to make sure you put your harness on, make sure you've got a harness and a helmet on and you're clipped in before you approach the cliff edge. And then a member of your team will come and check you because you're a member of his team. And they'll, he'll go through and go, right, make sure your buckle, buckles are done up, your carabiners done up, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, now you are safe. I am safe. Now I'm going to put you over the edge to rescue the casualty. And some people have said, oh, that, that from the outside, that can seem a little bit selfish or, you know, uh, um, when actually, you know, think, oh, it's only guys risking their lives to save the person. On the contrary, the idea is to not risk your life to save the person. Because if you lob over that, that cliff and you're not clipped in properly, well, that has done the casualty no good as you pass them by, you know, at terminal velocity to hit the deck below them. That's not, that's not helping the casualty at all. That's just slowed things down, in fact. So the best help you can be to the casualty and your team is to make sure that you are looking after yourself. You said about life being simple when you're in the hotel room or with your kit. Does that apply to 
the other things you've pursued does that dial itself back and if we were really to sort of jump back to your childhood i'm guessing there was quite a significant focus on like a working background because it sounds like your parents probably worked very hard to do the jobs they did um or spent a lot of time outdoors and exploring is that something that you think is almost like ingrained in your dna as you've you've grown up to spend time away to remove distraction from life to spend time on your own or or things like that yeah i think certainly like you know the, the question often asked is how do i go into the outdoors well i didn't get into the outdoors i was brought up in the highlands so it just was that just you know locks and rivers and forests and hills were just were just there it was kind of like you know like the, the streets and roads around you know most people grew up in cities um and then I suppose from a work ethic point of view, yeah, you know, my, my dad was a forester, so, you know, we're outside a lot. Um, and I suppose you're surrounded, but it's a great expression somebody said to me um, was that, or maybe actually, actually say said to me, I probably saw it as a meme on Instagram, but, but it was... Um, <laughs> it all blends together. It was, uh, yeah, uh, kids don't do as they're told, they do as they see. You know, you can tell them, like, if you're sat on the sofa stuffing your face with with kebabs and watching netflix and lecturing your kids about you know getting fit and healthy they're not gonna get fit and healthy whereas if you if they see you if you want to see i mean i i've never encouraged my kids to come to the gym i've never encouraged my kids to but they, they love they come to the gym we swing about the monkey bars do pull-ups we'd lift weights they've got like really like one one kilogram bars i've got them to kind of you know we join in but i've never encouraged them but they see me and see bex my wife you know in there and they just think that's standard and normal. You know, going for walks in the forest in the rain, we do that because that's just what you do because just because it's raining doesn't mean you shouldn't go outside. Because skin's waterproof, yeah. Exactly. Well, it's, it's, actually, skin's not waterproof. Uh, it's semi-permeable, whatever it is, yeah. Exactly. I, I, I never I never broached that argument with the training team, though, because it wouldn't have ended too well. Oh, we, we, we had one um, the training commander at one place. He said, uh, he said, no one ever died of being wet and cold. <laughs> I was just, I was, I was dying to be like, I can, I can, even at whatever it was, what age it was, like, you know, 19, 20 years old, I, I can, I can reel you off a huge list. I mean, let's start, let's, let's start with Scott of the Antarctic and his team. Oh, but uh, I thought, well, how many thousand people on the Titanic? But I was like, you know what? I'm going to leave this one. I'll just, just for once, I'll keep a trap shut. Um, not if I die to be wet and cold. I, th- I think you'll find. Oh, that's well, bang. Um, that's brilliant. Right. Everybody's going to do a 10-mile sprint because of Mr. Torbett. Um, thanks, guys. Um, I've, I've talked about that. I've lost a track. Um, T- time outdoors. Uh, time, yeah, time walking in the forest in the cold. Yeah, so, oh, yeah. And, and, and work and working, I think, you know, my mum especially w- w- worked, su- and still does. My mum is like a, a husky. She's down here. She's actually staying with us at the moment. And we need to make sure there's lots of jobs for her to do when she comes down because she can't, she can't sit so, you know, She's out in the garden. It's raining. She's out, she's out gardening right now. Um, yeah, she needs to be working. My brother was based out. And he's still in the army. He was based out in Cyprus at one point, and um, he clearly didn't have enough jobs racked up for her visit because one morning he got up about half past six, and uh, she'd already been up for a while. And he said, "You're right, mum." She goes, "Yeah, yeah, I got up early and uh, I've, I've built your rockery." It's like what? She just got up that morning and I couldn't find anything to do, so I built him a rockery. So, you, you know, so so your heart sort of work ethic puts me to shame. I think sometimes, um, and I think there's also this this kind of ethic that if you work hard, you can be successful. Um, it's not a guarantee, but certainly, you know, and from the podcasts I've listened to about 
businessmen or athletes or or coaches or politicians or whatever it is the one of the universal sort of traits amongst them all is that they've 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 grafted they put the effort in you know and i think that hard work doesn't necessarily guarantee success but but i think success without any 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 hard work is unlikely to happen even if you've got some sort of natural talent i think you're still gonna have to work for it yeah i was always told that hard work beats sort of that natural talent because you're always going to out outwork the other people in the room and that that's I look at Dwayne Johnson that's sort of his ethos isn't it be the hardest work in the room be the first one to set um, and then be be the last out of there as well do you I was going to ask you do you have any things that you feel are lucky like are there these things you take with you because I know a lot of people that do these things uh, th- there's this aspect of like all right I always need this on me or always need to do things in a certain order uh, it's very prevalent with like race drivers and people that are doing more extreme sports that they've got this sort of checklist i must do it in this order i must have my lucky rabbit's foot on me or whatever it might be is is that something you have utter nonsense utter (laughs) nonsense um utter no no hope hope is not a methodology for uh for success or getting yourself out in one piece um no if people need a psychological crutch, that's absolutely fine. I suppose I have them as well, but I have far more practical ones. And we have talked before about the line, so I'll check where that sandbank is on the way in. Because on the way out, if there's no visibility, I'll fall on the line. Now, I can fall that line and I'll go, I don't need to know where I am to physically survive. But seeing that sandbank as I leave, knowing I'm halfway halfway there, is a nice psychological crutch. So so I, I, get, I get that. Um, but it's a bit more practical. Um, you know, so I don't i don't believe in luck which has happened sometimes you know you get lucky sometimes you get unlucky but i think you make your own luck and you make your own luck by by attaining the right skills putting the effort and the hard work in not on the day but in the you know in the weeks months the years leading up to that point by planning it properly which all comes from your knowledge and skill as well so um no you know if somebody wins a race it's because they put years and years of effort into training their balls off or the female equivalent, um, you know, before that race and work not only on, on the physically, but the, the mental and psychological parts of their sport, not because they clipped, you know, the paw of a dead rabbit to the back of their shorts. Now that might be why they think they're doing it. I always feel sorry because it's like, it's like you didn't win because of that. You won because of you. Like I almost feel not feel sorry for them. Well, I suppose I do a little bit. It's like me, you know, credit where credit's due. Miss I do believe in credit where credit's due. If you you know, if you don't deserve the credit, don't take it. But if you do, then then you know, give yourself a pat on the back. So they say the race drivers who who win, I don't know, some sort of championship because they were the hardest working, most skilled, most dedicated person in the world at that sport, then they should recognise that rather than going, Oh, well, I won because I wear my lucky socks. No, you weren't, mate. You weren't, you're better than that. Um, I also have limited capacity you know, in time for you know doing bits and pieces, and frankly, I'd rather spend it on making sure I don't know my breathing apparatus is working correctly rather than um, making sure I had the you know the right color pants on. <laughs> it's very true. It's always it always fascinates me to see what people's uh, routines are, but I think you've definitely highlighted there because people, like we said earlier, see that snapshot of oh, you're lucky you get to do this. And it's like, well, if you analyze most people's lifestyles, everyone I've had on here, uh, the high performers, the business people that have made millions, 
they have just worked. They've outworked everyone. They've done the late hours. They've worked weekends. They they spend the training at 4 a.m. and then prepping kit at 5, 6 a.m. when people are still asleep to do the activity that people see on TV. Yeah, you, you see... You see the best bits. You see the, the end product. You know, you see that Instagram photograph. You don't see the weeks, months, years. I mean, I, 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 and the reality is that, you know, I still spend far more time sat behind my laptop than I do jump out of a plane. It's as simple as that. But, you know, and, and I've, I, I try and on podcasts, it talks, even on Instagram, the words below the cool picture, I'll say that. Although people don't take too much notice. They just go, oh, my God, your life's amazing. Um, all you do is this. Like, no, no. Didn't you read what was written below? Or didn't you hear what I said before I was talking about this? Is like, it's compromises, you know, the, the work I do, there's, there's more stability now, I think, than there's ever been because of the stunt work I've done and just some of the sponsorship I've got at the moment. But that could all just be a tomorrow. Um, and, you know, it's not pay So, So one of the big challenges that I've I've dealt with, we've dealt with actually as a family because my, my, my missus is a jazz singer. And if you think like sort of adventure is a financially unpredictable and unstable Love career path jazz music is even worse so um you know as a family we've we've learned how to to go months and months and months without working and you never know if it's going to be six months or or forever you, you never know if the phone's ever going to ring again um so 99.9 percent of the work that i do is self-generated you know you to, which which means that you might spend weeks and weeks and weeks generating a couple of days worth of work so the, the day rate might be great but actually you put it over the over the span of how long it took to, to create that day, you know that one day's work you think christ i'm actually earning that much per, per day which is why you got to sort of believe in and, and, and like what it is you you're doing um so yeah there's there's let's say there's the effort and and it's and, and i used to say i just you know do talks and and, and you start and go oh, i know i'm i'm very i'm very lucky to be in the position i am very fortunate to be in the position i am but then you sort of the older you get you realize no i'm not and, and there's there's nothing I we talked about natural talent before. I'm not naturally talented at anything, g- genuinely. You know, diving is a purely psychological sport, and and there's, but there's not one single sort of genetic thing you need to be a good cave diver. You can learn everything. Same with skydiving. Uh, in fact, skydiving, I tend to find that my my um, sort of learning trajectory of, of a, for a new skill tends to be a bit longer than other people. So I get there eventually because I do more jumps, but more effort. So I sort of end up overtaking people, but only because they've done 50 jumps now i've done 100 to get to that point i'm um, so certainly not, not a natural skydiver um same with sort of public speaking or writing or, or presenting whatever it is you know if you look back when i first started i was rubbish I'm not saying i'm that much better now but i am a little bit better now because i've put the effort in and more i've watched i've watched other people that I, I think are good and go right what's he doing how does he operate how does he work so you know it comes back to putting the effort in and stay in the course i've known when i first started out on this path a lot of people go right we're going to make a living from kind of adventure and venture media and that sort of stuff and within a few years of like earning nothing and have to do like you know take people climbing do commercial diving do the x-forces jobs to kind of pay the mortgage while you're trying to pursue this sleeping in a van sleeping on people's sofas uh, earning no money they gave up which is fair enough but but i think that i kind of made it only because i just stayed the course and stuck with it um but even seeing making it you know it's a very unstable position you don't get the job and that's a job for life if i was to stop grafting the phone would stop ringing 100 percent. 
So, you know, you're in this race. There's no, there's no finish line to this. And you've got to continually change, you know, as I get a bit older, you're changing sort of what you're doing, what you're using. I mean, you know, when I first started, social media didn't exist. So it was all magazine articles and, and sort of talks, at, at, you know, outdoor shows or adventure festivals, that sort of thing. And in and, and 10 years' time, who the hell knows? You know, I'll be in my 50s by then, and the landscape might be different. It might be. So it keeps things interesting, I think, almost going back and, and challenging yourself and, and reinventing yourself kind of keeps you keeps you young so uh, i've mentioned a few times stunts so I, i'll get into the sort of the, the the movie stunt world rather than the sort of stunts for documentaries of real life stuff but the movie stuff for four years four or five years ago and then decided to get on the british stunt register which uh, is like a i don't know like almost like the sort of stunt person's union if, if you will and you've got to do certain disciplines to get in, um, which some of which I, I didn't have. So my skydiving, my diving, climbing, all that sort of stuff. But to learn a martial art, um, I had to learn to ride a horse to a, a fairly advanced standard to pass the, the, the sort of stunt rider's uh, assessment, which can be brutal, frankly, when you're trying to still work and raise a family, you know, and all this sort of thing. But it was, it was great to be forced to learn new skills you know, and dedicate yourself to something rather than just kind of maintain the skills. And also, again, with that, I know a lot of people that I met along the way who are training for the stunt register who have never made it and will never make it because, you know, it takes three or four years as a minimum. I think the average is six years of training to get on the stunt register. And it's a long course. And this is where most people, I think, fail at whatever it is. Whether it be training, diet, writing a book, it's the long game. It's consistency trumps short bursts of effort every single time. And the problem is the gyms are ram-packed on the 2nd of January and they're empty by the 1st of February, you know, and, and that's that's people's issue. And I, I find it, you know, I, I get someone get annoyed at myself that I've missed a training session or missed a few training sessions, or actually last week we're out in, out in Morocco on a job and I, didn't, I couldn't retrain for seven days, but it's fine. Because if you've got six sessions a week to do, and even if you're only doing like five out of those six, most weeks throughout the year you're ahead of the game so if you miss a week it doesn't matter if you're eating healthy most of the time if you have a pizza don't stress about it i've made my said you know one salad doesn't make you doesn't make you ripped and one pizza doesn't make you fat and that is absolutely true it's true that consistency really builds up over time it's compounded and it's seriously underestimated i mean we did allude to it earlier that those small details done consistently will make uh will appear to look like a massive effort and that, that's the way people perceive these things is that oh you must have done this eight-week training program or this three-month program or 90-day program and it's never about that it's always what I've always said to people when I try and tell them this coaching experience whatever I might start to work with them on there's going to be things you see in the short term medium and then these long-term things are the things that people very rarely attain because they're not willing to go deep enough and give it the time for the body to catch up. You're going to see uh, soft tissue changes, but what happens to all the other stuff, the mental capacity around it, the increased proprioceptive feedback, these things that become subconscious, things don't go from the front brain to the subconscious like that. They take time to sort of weave their way in. And I suppose it's like for you, you're saying doing your checks, there's still this understanding that complacency can creep in. So it's kind of nice to have someone to just say, can you just check on me? Just make sure I'm good to go. 
and and I think that's good to have in life as well. I've talked about this at length. I think that's the the value of having a good partner, good friends, uh, people around you that call you out and look at you and say, do you know what? You could probably do that a bit better. Because if we don't have that in life, it's very easy to sort of put yourself on the pedestal and think you've made it. And none of us have. None of us. Yeah, I think the the, the other thing is is the opposite. I think I'm, I sometimes suffer from the opposite problem in that I'm not particularly kind to myself in the sense that, you know, if I've got six sessions to do and I've only done five that week, then I am like, right, that's, you know, that's a failure. And I'm trying to be better because I'm not understanding this. It's the, it's the long game, but it's still like, I don't think I've ever made, like we've, we're, we're training, well, you could be training like six sessions a week, so that's 24 sessions a month. I don't think I've ever managed to get them all in, which is a failure to me. I can be pretty, I'm, I'm far less forgiving of myself than I am of other people. Because if anyone else told me that, I'd be like, man, that's absolutely, like I just said, that's absolutely fine. If you've got six sessions a week to do and you're banging out five consistently every single week, you're only dropping like one a week. That's amazing. That's such a great effort. But um, yeah, I, I'm not always the best at following my own own advice as far as, you know, applying a bit of real realism and, and, and real life to um what you'd like to achieve, you know? Do you find that, I think this is present in a lot of people that have done military service as well. I don't know if that's something, whether you can relate it to that or not, that this, don't get me wrong, people can go one of many, many ways from, from their military service onwards. Some people decide to go completely the other way where they're like, you know, I'm done with this physical stuff. I, I, I just don't want to do it. But a lot of the people I definitely know now that ex-military, it's almost like if you're not quite, if you haven't done that 100%, even if you've hit 99, it's still not it yet. You you haven't completed it. And, and I can relate completely to it. And also... Yeah, I've told you yourself and, and other people I work with. It's like, hey, look, it's the long game. It's the think of the month, not the week or the day. Think of the year, not not the month, because that will make a difference. And if if over the case of uh, sort of the course of a year, you trained for a grand total of two weeks, then yeah, we've got a big problem here. However, if it was the case of training 11 months out of 12 months, mm. a deload is actually a good thing. And taking that week off, it, one of the reasons without sort of being too public on, on your stuff as well. Like you have natural deloads. Yeah. You move through a three month program and I know for a fact you might be away for a week and it's like, hey, take that as a deload. That's your fifty percent off. And take it easy, give yourself time to rest up because then you're gonna come back, hit it hard, and you might have three big jobs in a row or you might be preparing for a film. All of that's gonna make a big difference. Yeah, I suppose my question was really, do you think that comes from military service or is that something that's just inbuilt with you personally? I don't. I I got into the, the forces quite young, so it's it's sometimes it's hard to to kind of pin if I had that before or not. Certainly, you know, I've been out of the force a while now, but I will forever be an ex-soldier. Like I'll never be a civvy. You know, I still am fanatical about never being late. Be five minutes early. You know, um, about looking after your kit, about being organised, about. You know, and and and, train, and you're right. The, the 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 military. There's this perception that everyone in the military is super fit. They're not. Uh, it's usually the most sort of the most. You know, most people have heard of the Paris, the, the special forces, the Marines. You know, those sort of sort of front line. You know, po- poster kind of units where everybody is super fit. Um, but certainly within units I serve with those sort of units that I, that I serve with, fitness was a massive thing, and it was. And and I think I think today. I I still think that it can be a sort of 
outward facing representation about certain parts of your character and that doesn't mean to be super super fit but if you are it says something but also you know it's an understanding that you that you should be healthy and how to be healthy and and that it's not okay to be unhealthy so i i think yeah i think certainly that the sort of not fanaticism should we say but but the, the understanding that the fitness to me and being fit and training is still a part of who i am because it it was such a massive part of of kind of the world i lived in you lived with these guys you you went out drinking with these guys you went in operation with these guys it was my entire world was surrounded by it i mean going back to so four, four nine squadron which is the, the commando para sf and um, bomb disposal squadron Basically, half the guys were Paris, half the guys were Marines, um, or, well, or, or commandos, sorry, half the guys were Paris, half the guys were commandos, and, and actually more like a third and a third, because the middle third were both super, super fit people, right? So we did the, like, the annual uh, fitness test, you know, there'd be a big rivalry between whether it's going to be the maroon lids or the green lids would be get, get the high scores. So they were like probably more motivated than a normal airborne or commando unit because it was this rivalry. Um, and if you'd asked at the time how how fit I was, I would have said I was average. I was averagely fit because I was kind of middle of the squadron fitness. No, I was an absolute beast, <laughs> absolute beast. But but it's all relative. So in my little world, I was about average. And even now, I th- because I work a lot with with stunt stunt men and women, you know, who are all super motivated, super professional, and very very physically able people you know to, to a man and woman um and a great many of them are like ex-professional gymnasts and that's you know gb gymnasts or whatever um and you know most are sort of late 20s to, to sort of late 30s the ones that i work on the ground with so they're all a lot younger than me so i'm like christ i'm kind of less fit than a lot of them so i think christ, i've got a lot of work to do to kind of just just be average here because that's that's the world i operate in and your world is relative but people do say, well, my mates in the village that I live in, they're like, are you, are you taking the piss, mate? You're like, you're the fittest bloke. You're, you're one of the oldest. In, in our little sort of social group, we're probably the oldest man, and yet I'm by far and away the fittest. But um, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily to have a slight skewed. It's, it's like going back to being, me being a bit harsh on myself. I, I recognize that, but I also recognize the advantage to this because oh, – Although it's unhealthy, perhaps getting ninety nine percent and caring more about the one percent you didn't get than the ninety nine percent you did, and I would advise people not to to, operate, to try and operate, try and pat yourself on the back when you do achieve good things. But by the same token, I have come across people who are like, "Oh yeah, like fifty percent is great. That's cool. That's fine. I'm happy with that." Which means they never really get more than fifty percent. So the the flip side is yes, it's almost like ambition comes with eternal dissatisfaction you know so the 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 pro of being ambitious is that you do achieve great things you will be successful in whatever you want to do but but also the likelihood is you're never going to be satisfied and you can't sit still um so pros and cons i suppose but that's a challenge in itself it's something i constantly reflect on it's like do i i think we set these arbitrary time frames to achieve certain things and i think that's one of the biggest issues is expectation of achievement it's like right i need to achieve this by this age why so that number we've made a thing in our head it might be so by the age of 40 i've done it myself like i said right by the time i hit 40 i want to do this this and this i'm like why why have i chosen 40 why that day why do i need to do it by the middle of october on that 
yeah, it, it makes no sense at all, but it does create for me, I'm more in, in, um, more fascinated with the journey that is created to get there. And then what I'm trying to do more of in life now is give it every single thing I've got to achieve it. And if I don't let go of the result and then just keep going regardless and just say, Hey, that's the way it is. I'm going to work for it regardless because you can eat yourself up, can't you? Especially in your work. And, uh, you might, like you said, if a piece of equipment fails, the difference between continuing and turning back might be death. Mm. So it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, I think that there is this, I, th- I think, like you say, an average like six weeks or 40 is is a sort of vague, arbitrary time frame, like a goal, because it's a bit like, what's it between 42 days and 43? Why six, six weeks, not six weeks and two days? Why not 45 days, because that's nice and round, or 50 days or 40, whatever. Um, it's, it's certainly much simpler, I think, and easier to have a very specific hard goal. So train for something. So if I want to get better at running, I wouldn't go, right, I'll get better at running and I'll go, uh, I've got run six miles in 45 minutes. And I'll go, no, no, I'll enter a race on this date that's a hard line in the sand because otherwise, if you say I'll, I'll get, I'll, I'll try and lose X percent body fat in six weeks, well, the X percent body fat's a bit, you can, you can, that can kind of move. It can be, it can be 3%, it can be 3.1%, 29 six weeks, six and a half weeks. You know, it's, it's a, it doesn't really matter. Whereas a race is a specific distance at a specific date. That's a hard line in the sand. Much like the, the tests I took for the British Stuntmaster, the horse riding test, for example. Bang, that's the next one. I am training for that. And, and it helps. So, you know, I took six months off, basically, and just lived on the back of a horse for six months, which in the beginning... God damn that hurt. So, <laughs> Jesus, yeah, that was a that was an, an, an immersion protocol for that. Jesus. Um, and uh, I fell off quite a few times. Uh, mind you, riding bareback, jumping one meter fences is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, I was going to say. I think even from it, I know a few people because of the area I live in that are in the New Forest in England. It's um, there's a lot of horse riders around here, and they would surely attest to that being challenging, even as experienced riders. Yeah, well, most most riders don't ride bareback because it's just not something you would do. It's, it's like you know, most people don't ride motorbikes without a seat. Why? Why would you? Um, so having these, and then, but the same token, sometimes an arbitrary goal can help with the journey. So you know, you and I are working on handstands at the moment, um, and I don't need to do a handstand for work. Like no one in this, the movie business, nor on a cave dive or a skydive, and there's there's nowhere in my either my in my professional life, and bearing in mind my professional life is also my hobbies, like the same thing. I don't really have a sort of do I need to do a handstand. However, um, as we both know, and as the the listening audience is about to find out, you know my my T spine, my shoulders are problematic. They're not very flexible. Also, so the the work it takes for me to get from where I am now. To be able to do a handstand is going to massively help with some of my my sort of movement biomechanical and injury issues. So, if I can get all those gains, but still never manage to do a handstand, I don't really care. The handstand is just like the arbitrary goal, but it's not an arbitrary goal really because the journey that it takes to get there is super important. But having that that sort of arbitrary goal, having a having a finish line at the end, makes it much easier to then dictate. And then follow that path, but a hard one like you, you know, or, or in this case, you've got a coach. But say, 
having a having a race, having like I've got a friend of mine entered a, did an Ironman, so he had to train. He's like, I've committed to this Ironman, I've got to train. Whereas having a slightly more vague, like, oh, I'll I'll lose some weight before summer, or I'll I'll get fit in six weeks, or I'll do this. It's all a little bit, even the number of sessions per week we're talking about before. Yeah, if you, if you achieve six sessions a week, well done. But if you weren't putting any effort in those six sessions, then it's it is it's a it's a difficult one. So that, that that's why I I think certain goals are are useful because if you're doing six sessions a week, putting in no effort after three months, you will not see any change. So if you if you'd a test that would tell you that right, I've tested myself and actually I can I don't know pick up I can lift the same weight whatever lift you want to put in there today as I could do three months ago why is that well it's because you've been training six times a week but you've been you've been half arsing it okay so we need to look at why that is so I think tests and arbitrary goals can be useful if they're anything else god it's if they're used correctly it's like a gym you know gyms are great if you use them right if you tip up and just sit in the corner on your phone then they're noise at all it's a tool yeah, it, it, you you were mentioning about uh, using a specific uh, training goal, which is obviously what we're doing. And I've talked about it a few times on here, and people go, "Oh God, he's obsessed with those freaking handstands." Is it's more because it is a very defined pattern, and you can see changes in your body. And what I'm more concerned with now is these internal changes. Like, if you can see, we could pick ten positions, which is fundamentally what I have. So, so pick five. And then we alter the internal environment. Like, how does my shoulder work? How does my hip and knee work? Because we know that if that joint can achieve a certain pattern, that when you then move that back into your normal life, if that pattern was, say, your 100% range, most of life really sort of is within about a 20 or 30 degree range on each joint. It's not going to change that much because life is designed around us. It's easy to navigate. The, the whole world has been designed around ease as opposed to, making things harder but the problem is if everything's easy the body breaks down because it doesn't need to produce anything to get better and the things you're doing if you're crawling through through caves or dropping from height or anything like this it's all going to have these ranges that if you don't explore them in training it could cause potential injury mm. and that's where i'm coming from with a lot of my training for people as well yeah, you know, the, the, the body and the mind, the, the body does, gets good at what it does a lot of, simple as that. Uh, although it's worth pointing out, you you are obsessed by hand balancing, you know that, don't you? I am obsessed, yeah. yeah you, you, ha- you have to be, you have to yeah, be. <laughs> People accuse you of being obsessed with hand balancing. Yes, they're absolutely correct. <laughs> I never said they were incorrect. You, but you, yeah, it's, I think you have to, I think obsession has become, funny enough that you mentioned that, I think obsession has become this, word that sort of looked upon as isn't a bad thing for many people as well and i've actually realized that all of these people i'm sure you've worked with them in the film industry as well they are obsessed with being the best in what they do and that's how they've got to where they are yeah you you have to be um you know obsession is a is a fantastic asset as long as you're obsessed with the right thing um certainly with again going back to training for the stunt roster you basically got to get obsessed you know, you have to you have to make it your absolute priority, and you know, to the point where I was working more just to fund the training, um, 
and I spend, and it was like, right, let's not forget about how much you're spending. Just, just the priority is to get through. Which why I say we took, I, I did a big stunt job in in September of the of the year before. Um, I got on and so, right, I've got enough money to pay the mortgage and pay for six months of of, of training. So I'm just going to take six months off. And I'm literally going to be full time riding uh, for six months because that's that's what it takes to get it done. So someone like yourself who is progressing like do lad now you could probably do a one fingered handstand probably by now but you won't get there by having it as a kind of oh i'll have a bash now and again or i'll do a little bit here and there and you, you have to get a bit obsessed to, to get to that level and things that people don't want to get to i don't want to get to that level i would rather spend my time doing other things than than, than hand balancing um which is why i will never get to where, where you are and I'm cool with that. That's that's not my, my thing. But I think so. Obsession is is actually very, very, very useful if it's directed in in the right way. Yeah, direction and dosage seems to be the words that come to mind. Like how much time is we only have a certain amount of time here, and I think choosing the things you put the most time into is is obviously a very individual and specific approach to you and i feel that the dosage is important because you might say that and also the quality i suppose that's the other thing isn't it like you alluded to is that or that you mentioned is that quality is really important i actually talked about this with one of my teachers uh prior to this or one of my previous teachers paul is that some people do things and they go around saying i've done this for 20 years but out of those 20 years, how much time have you actually trained for that specific role? You may have done one thing once a month for 20 years, whereas you're standing next to someone who's trained every single day for 20 years, and they may have researched away from the thing that they were doing. They may have spent the whole time just being obsessed by that, that process. And actually, one of the questions I had for you, Andy, is like, how did you get into, because I think it's good to name drop sometimes, it's a very unmilitary thing and a very un-British thing, but you have been involved with, uh, you were involved with Bond and you were doing stunt work for Daniel Craig at one point. Is that correct? Uh, I was part of the stunt department. So yeah, I mean, there's, there was, it was a fairly big stunt department with a lot of uh, men and women on it, but I was, I was part of the stunt department uh, for No Time to Die. Yeah. That's, I, I, I signed an NDA that was like the Gutenberg Bible, not until this day, not until they were sure what I meant to say. So I'll, I, but that, that, that is, <laughs> That you know, my, my name's on the credits. So that's a matter of public record that I was, I was a, I was a stunt performer on uh, on the last Bond film, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was a fun experience. It was, it was good. It was exactly as cool as it sounds, to be honest. Awesome. Um, you know, I mean, you're doing, you're being paid to do stunts on a James Bond film, which is really cool, and we did some really cool stuff. But, but more than anything else, it was the people. So up till then, you know, I, I'd done a lot of what you might think is like skydiving, climbing, caving, cave diving, free diving, all that stuff for, for documentaries, like wildlife documentaries and that sort of stuff. And then my own adventure projects, sponsors and what have you, but not actually work within the kind of movie world. That's my first kind of outing. And it was like finding a little tribe again. And it was probably since the forces that I, I, I met a group of people who are, hadn't didn't know, but were like-minded, you know, because the vast majority of stunt performers are a bit like us in the sense that finishing work and going to the gym is not weird. You know, drinking shakes for breakfast or eating salad for lunch is not weird. Like still within, again, we kind of forget because the cycles are moving, but you know, most people, if you say, Oh, I'm, I'm staying off gluten and dairy 
why are oh, because it just it kind of makes my joints or my recovery isn't as good when I'm when I'm eating a lot of gluten and dairy. And they're going, oh bloody hell, or I'm not drinking because I'm training. Or even in Jamaica, we were filming in Jamaica for a month. Then after we'd finished work, you know, most of the other departments, like you know, the, the light department, the camera department, would go out for some beers, and all the stunties would pile down the beach and go surfing or paddleboarding or freediving, you know, or would hit the gym. And uh, it's in in that world that's cool, and that's and to be out doing sports and training and eating well is all considered good and normal, as opposed to, you know. A bit strange, like it's still seen a lot of parts of of society. You know, you're a bit of a weirdo if you try and eat healthy, and, and you know, would rather go to the gym than than go to the pub. Um, and the other thing is that everyone was genuinely decent human beings. The people I'd met there, I mean, some of them, um, you know, came to my wedding recently or last year. They'd be friends for life because they're just good human beings. But um, so it's a very good environment to sort of work and live in uh, five days a week because it it brings up, you think, okay, cool, I've got to shift my game up a bit because actually I might think I'm good within the circles I'm moving in right now, but these guys are another level. I need to I need to get, it motivates you to get back in the gym. It motivates you to, to eat that a bit better. It motivates you to start studying. So, because a lot of them, again, like I do, and you do, so you're looking at, right, studying, listening to podcasts like this one, like the Andrew Huberman podcast, things because they want to learn about you know, diet, nutrition, where should I be, which supplements should be taken? How can I change my training to improve? Which is a great kind of environment to be in um, because it just makes it much, it normalizes training, eating healthily and trying to improve yourself. For me, it's now, it sounds like these guys and yourself are very much the same way. It's the why. I want to know the why to everything. Why is it like this? Why, why would you do it that way? How do you do it this way? Why is um, why is this method better than another? Because we we don't know much. We really don't know much. And once you dive into that growth mindset, you are always, it's addictive. I think it's very addictive where you you think, I need to know a little bit more. Because, well, I mean, I, mean, I know I, I do as well. I feel I need to keep learning. I need to keep learning for many reasons, but partly because maybe it's that imposter syndrome as well. I almost feel like I don't know enough yet. My granddad used to read a lot. And I remember as, as a young kid, he used to always, always have books out about space and animals. Everything was always about, right, look at this. We don't know about this yet, but this is what we think it is. And I said, well, why, why don't we know about this yet? He's like, because we can't see it yet, or maybe something hasn't happened. And I always think if you want to get some questions out there, just start investigating space or looking outwards or up. Um, or in, in, I suppose in other ways, it's like looking down in, in your case as well, like looking at areas that are unexplored because it does... It, it sort of answers these questions naturally as well, uh, I think, in some ways. How did film work differ from your work? Because you've obviously done work with the BBC as well. And I actually heard a story, you might want to tell it, is uh, around them asking you to do a certain skydive from a certain height. And the it, it was a little bit quicker than you, you thought it might be. As in, like the like the amount of time to prepare for it from from for like a oh it's just it's it's this the, the high altitude one yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah. the the jump if I could do this jump tomorrow my eyes closed it, it's not that big a deal now which actually again goes back to what we said before about about you know the cave it's not the cave the problem it's the it's the people um in that you know so very very early in my skydiving career when I'd done like you know twenty five jumps and that was it. Um, the BBC asked me to 
do a hey-ho jump, so it's high altitude, high opening. So basically you jump up a plane, in this case 28,000 feet, um, and pop your parachute. But there are a number of problems with jumping from that sort of altitude. Um, you know, obviously the air is very thin, so you've got to carry oxygen with you. If you, if you, um, if you don't, then you're going to pass out, and then you can be unconscious as you free fall towards the earth. So you're wearing this big like fighter pilot helmet and oxygen mask. You're carrying an oxygen bottle, big steel bottle strapped to your chest. Um, as well as that, had a, had a big nav plate, navigation plate. It's like a big shelf that, again, straps to your chest. If you look down, you can see your compass, your GPS, and there's camera equipment because I was, I was filming it as well. The air is much thinner up there, so it's harder to get stable. Um, but you have to get stable super quick because your acceleration is faster in the thin air. So you've got about three seconds from leaving the aircraft to pull your parachute, otherwise you're traveling too fast. So all this made it technically quite a difficult jump. I say now, you know, one and a half thousand jumps later, I could do it with my eyes closed. It's not a big a deal. The jump itself hasn't changed in the slightest. It's the, you know, the air's not got thicker. Um, it's not got any, any safer or any technically harder. The only thing that's changed is me. So the actual, you know, as I said before, but the, the cave, the cave doesn't doesn't change. It's, it's whether someone is good and bad or bad at cave diving is what changes. So much like this, but back then clearly it was a huge, huge deal, and I was aware it's out of my comfort zone. And the problem was we're meant to have all this training time, but because of various BBC administrative errors, which sometimes happens to BBC, um, and some bad weather out in Arizona where we were training, I think oh, I'd like to, was it three or four days, you know, Jesus. So we had time rather than doing like you know move up a gear, you know do do a jump with like one piece of kit and then do a few more jumps with them, can, can consolidate that until we're good with it, and then move up, add an extra piece of kit, and then. And then, you know, take each step, each level, and consolidate before you move on to the next level. Didn't have time for that. So basically, we just did the test jump. So like, right, jump one, you'll jump with this kit. Jump two, you'll jump with this, this, and this kit. Jump three, you'll jump with this, 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 this jump. Jump four, you'll do all that kit, and you'll do it from, like, whatever. So you're at that first jump with the extra kit was the hardest jump of my life. So it's pretty stressful. I'd land, and then we'd add stuff on. So the next jump was now the hardest jump of my life, you know? So it was just, a, it, was a, it was a series of consecutively, like the hardest jump of my life. I was just like, you know, just beating a PB every single time. So it was a fairly stressful few days. And I, there's, there's, a, there's a bit, I think it's not in the edit, but at the time, the door opens, um, it's all good, you know, you can, you're at 20, well, it was 20,000 feet and um, over the Arizona desert. And, and my, my friend, Dane Kenny, who was teaching me, he's at a retired, he was a retired, I think, uh, air marshal from, from, from the SAS. He was, he was the one that was training me. He was like, right, you know, ready, steady, go. Green light goes on, right, say go. And I don't move. And um, the film crew inside thought, oh, he's not going to go. He's he's just not going to do it. And they said, I was chatting, the, the sound guy was, he was like, we all thought, fair one. He's, it's been a bit, it's been a bit much, to be honest. Um, and then I jumped because in that few seconds, I hadn't, I hadn't taken a few seconds to go, oh, I don't want to do this. The thought of not jumping hadn't crossed my mind after all we've been through, but it was more. I think go, and I was like, "Hey, oh bloody hell, we've actually pulled this off." Because you know, I was so caught up in the the journey, I only really got thought about the destinations. I was kind of almost surprised in that moment. Shit, we've actually got, we've actually, we're actually, here. cry. Okay, this is it, right? Go, go, go. But the thing I'd say that was an advantage was that I've spent an awful lot of my life outside my comfort zone, so I've become reasonably comfortable at being uncomfortable in the sense that when you do a new thing you know those physically uncomfortable 
kind of feelings. Um, you know, your, your stomach's turning, you're sweating, your heart rate's up. I was like, oh, this is familiar. I've been here before. Yeah, I, I know what this is. This is my, the sort of, you know, the, the, the physical response to distress, to anxiety, to fear. Cool. Uh, you know, so in my, even my body is like sweating, my heart rate's up, my stomach's turning. My head's actually pretty cool. Going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I recognize all this. So it is something I just want to say when I do talks is that when you step outside your comfort zone, there's two results. One is the comfort zone itself has expanded. You've now got a greater capacity, a greater comfort zone. But also, the more times you do it, the more familiar you become with those sort of mental and physical feelings. And therefore, the more comfortable you are being in your discomfort zone, you know, the outside, your, outside your comfort zone. And therefore, the easier it is to step outside it. So the more readily you are to do it. So that expansion of the comfort zone becomes exponentially faster and faster and faster and faster. So even on that, it was very stressful. I was like, oh, yeah, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm stressed. I'm basically in a continual state of stress for four days. Cool. I've, I've been here before, you know, maybe not this long, but I, I know what this is. This is just how it goes. It's the same with training, like with, with the horse riding thing. You know, I've done enough training of skills over the years to recognize the signs and the patterns, which is you get good initially, or initially it's really, you're really anxious and it's really stressful and you're a bit scared. You know, I've been about a horse, oh, I don't know what's going on. But then you're, you pick up and then suddenly you get a real increase in skills and then it plateaus off. You get frustrated and I, you get moody. And you get pissed off because you put all this, the same amount of effort in the same number of hours, but you're not making any progress. But then after a while, you then it starts picking up again at a slightly slower rate because the better you are, the more effort it is, it is to improve. And that pattern of sort of initial stress, rapid increase, plateau frustration, and then gradual increase is pretty much how it goes, certainly for me. So even I, I still got frustrated and moody in the plateau phase when I was learning to ride a horse, but I was like, okay, cool. I, I, at least I know what this is. I think that's the value of learning a skill because it does teach you that you see this curve in everything. For example, you see that very steep learning curve in the initial stages and everyone thinks, great, this is going to be easy. I'm going to nail this thing in a year. I can't understand why these people are training for 10 years to try and get this thing because, hey, I'm going to smash this in a year. And then all of a sudden, the realization comes in where they go, oh, plateau, okay. I'm sure this isn't going to hang around for long. And it does. It goes on and on. That curve becomes flatter and flatter as the time goes on and hovers just below the 100% mark all the time. It never touches that 100%. And that's what I've realized is that to get into the refined patterns, to get into the, and not call myself this by any means, but like to get into this sort of expert bracket or what people perceive as is a lot of time with very little to show for it. But to me, that is teaching me more about myself. Like, how do I handle, how do I handle not being perceived to be getting better by others? Because fundamentally, it's only yourself you have to prove it to anyway. Um, I think so many of us are so dependent on that external satisfaction or gratification, especially because of social media. And I think that's probably the biggest issue is that I do. I heard you speaking on one of the other podcasts um, as I was doing some research for this one, where you were saying about spending time with friends, your agent said to you, why didn't you take a photo or why didn't you take any, any footage of it? And you're like, because I'm with my friends. Otherwise it's like being at the concert with the video, you're videoing the concert to watch back after the concert, which you might as well have watched on TV. What's the point? You might as well watch it and take it in. And that to me is, is a big deal. We're trying to notice the details, but continuing to put that effort in and saying, Hey, it's only me that I need to I need to prove anything to fundamentally. Is that somewhere where you're at now, Andy? Or is, 
or you always been there? Yeah, I mean, I to be fair, I've got to have a shop window because of, I've got a sort of public persona, not persona, oh, I suppose it's public persona, you know, and, and sponsors. So I've got responsibility to, to post stuff and to show stuff and talk about certain certain things. Um, you know, the training is, I mean, I do put pop stories up, but more more because I'm like, look, I this this is the reality. I train every day. This is what I look like every day. Because again, I, I want people to realize that, that, you know, not so much just me, but like what's achievable or not achievable you know, on an annual basis rather than on a certain day. Because I say a lot, a lot of social media is, you know, these guys with like millions of followers, they look phenomenal, but they look phenomenal for a photo shoot twice a year. And then they post, you know, through, throughout the year. They don't, they don't maintain that because again, it's unrealistic. So it's trying to, get, it's trying to set people's expectations to what is realistic. And that's not to lower their expectations. It's to go, look, you know, I can be pretty fit and I can look pretty good all year round. But what I have never achieved, nor ever will, is like, two percent body fat because hey, i think it's unhealthy and secondly you cannot maintain that 12 months a year and perform and be robust so so with me um so from a training point of view it's the, the gratification doesn't come from aesthetics or from likes it comes from the ability to do cool things you know so i i, I having a reason to train definitely helps definitely helps like i i the people who are just training for the sake of training, fair play. You know, if they're training to look good, okay, that's that's fair enough. Or if they're training to, because they enjoy it even better, that's the best way, I suppose, is to hit the gym because you love going to the gym. But people have said to me, how can you, how do you motivate yourself to train all the time? And it's like, well, I don't really motivate myself. I'm going to get a choice. Like, I, I don't do it for fun, frankly, between you and me. It's much easier to sit on the sofa, watch Netflix, and eat Pringles. It is like go to the gym is hard work. You've got to drag my ass to the gym. Sometimes I can't be bothered, but because of the nature of my work, regardless of which aspect of the sort of different jobs that I have, they all have a very physical element, and therefore, and it's how I earn my 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 pay packet. You know, I I pay my mortgage and I feed my kids by doing these things, so I can't not train because. I would rapidly go downhill physically and they'd be incapable of doing my jobs and or be injured on a job. And in which case, I'm freelance. Therefore, if I get injured, I can't work. I don't get paid. There's nothing. There's no backup. I can't afford to get too badly injured. The right injuries I get, I need to try and recover from. You know, Even now, we did a job a few weeks ago. I've got, I've got a bash my ankle um, and I've got a grade one um, ligament tear in my, in my AC joint in my shoulder. But you still train. It's like, well, you may suck it up, and you got to train around it. You're not trying to make your injury worse. You're not trying to be naive about it, but you still got to keep going because actually, it happened the Friday on the Monday morning. I'm back into work, and and that's the reality of being a freelancer in 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 the sort of in the worlds that that I I earn my living from. So, it, it is handy to have a very good reason to hit the gym. It makes motivation less important because you know if you haven't got a choice then you got to do it. And you are in a world where aesthetics are important. I mean, if we were looking at like Daniel Craig as an example, he's maintained good shape through all of the Bond films. So if you want that job, you're going to have to look similar or whatever the camera wants from you, I suppose, or whatever the, the role dictates, there is an aesthetic component. The way I like to see things is move well, and then the aesthetics will come because of it, but you can manipulate and focus on specific movement patterns done well 
but still create a good aesthetic balance, especially in your industry? Oh, yes. I mean, certainly the, the priority in, in, in stunt performing is the latter part of the performance in, in the sense that you want your body to perform. So I think your body has to be capable of doing the job it needs to do and has to have a like, degree of robustness so you can bounce back, you know. The vast majority of, of a stunt performer's earnings comes from falling over, basically. That's what we do a lot of. <laughs> Taking hits is what we do. Um, you know, and, and as everyone gets in, everyone gets injured. Everyone knows we've all got little tricks and tips. And like when I did my AC joint, there must be about four or five other guys in the team were like, "Oh yeah, I've done that. Yeah, I've done that." That's just you know, you choose your trade. You can't you can't work hard to become a stunt performer and then complain because you get injured. It's just well, then you're in the wrong business. I think from an aesthetics point of view, in the stunt world, it tends to be more um, getting the same build, the same sort of silhouette, if you will, as the person that you are doubling, if that's the role or if whatever it is required for. You know, there's a, there's a guy at the moment, lovely guy, he, um, sort of ex-strong man, bodybuilder, who, who doubles, who's one of the guys who doubles John Cena. So he's he's got to work hard to maintain size, you know. He's a big guy. Yeah, he's a, he's a big, big guy. Absolutely lovely fellow as well, but he is a beast. Whereas I think from a, a purely aesthetics, but in that, in that sort of like about, about Daniel Craig looking really good for camera, your stunt guys very rarely get sort of full frontals, if you will, you know, we're not in costume, but you to try to hide. You're, you're there to support the actor, you know. So your Dark Rays, your Ryan Reynolds, your Hugh Jackmans, they're, I'd say, those sort of action actors um, or actors who, who, who do a sort of action role where aesthetics is important. They're the ones that are doing some savage diet and training programs. Um, you know, it's, it's rare, I think, really for a stunt performer to have to get to, like, you know, three percent body fat and look absolutely shredded. That that's normally the responsibility of the of the the main actor. You know, like your Dwayne Johnsons and saying you know Ryan Reynolds and people like that. I think it's from stunt performers' point of view. Yeah, we train kind of for aesthetic. I think we all train for aesthetics. At least an eye on aesthetics because we all want to look good. That's that's nothing wrong with that. You know, vanity can be a great motivator, and if it motivates you to get in the gym and eat better, then then you know you're still healthier, so better off for it. But I think certainly for, for me, and I think I'd say this for, for, for most of the stunt guys I know, guys and girls I know, you know, the key thing is to be able to do the job, run, jump, roll, whatever, but also take the hits and bounce back. So it's physical performance and physical robustness is probably a higher priority than aesthetics. I think a lot of people misunderstand that that is a, a priority for a lot of us as well, especially as we get older. The The resilient standpoint is the thing that, it's the way I see it. Injury prevention, uh, I've got a good friend of mine as a coach as well, and we discussed the other day, and it's that injury prevention should be the top of the list every single time. When you're designing a program, it's it needs to be quality and it needs to be needs to mitigate injury, but give you enough stimulus to continue to challenge the body. But for example, if you push all the metrics up at once, someone's going to get injured. If you don't push them up enough and all of them are quite low, there'll be no development at all. And it depends on what, uh, what part of the program that person is in, what their goal is, and various other bits and pieces, depending on what their life dictates for it. For someone like yourself, you're looking at m a number of different factors, because, but resilience being the standpoint, let's look at the joint, let's make sure each joint has the capability to bounce back if it does get injured. But yeah, I think a lot of people's motivation is purely aesthetics and what they've, I mean, it's the typical bodybuilder shape is that people are going in and training muscles so they're short and incapable of achieving daily tasks and i think training should complement life first and foremost 
I've always said it on any podcast because of that reason. Life really, we can get caught up with the fancy stuff, the things that people see, that minute element that is the surface or the skin. And then people forget about all the work that's behind it and all those little boring things that that need to be done. Unfortunately, it's like the kit prep is probably a prime example of that. You have to check your kit. Yeah, I mean, you know, the example I was talking about there was, was some stunts, but it's the same when I'm you know, cave diving, caving, climbing, skydiving. If I'm dragging kit through a through a dry cave, the other side of a of an underwater passage, and I get injured, I'm not getting out. So almost from 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 a and same with skydiving, the sky's not well, it can be physical in certain ways, but you know, um, I was at the World Championships last October out in Arizona, and the winds were really dodgy. So luckily, you know, obviously the World Championships, everybody's, everybody's pretty good at landing, so unsurprisingly. But still, the winds were and they were they were flicking around all the place. Some pretty fast landings, you know, we're, we're we're sliding in quite a few landings, some rough rough hits. But again, if you if you, if you get injured there, that's your the competition actually done. You're done. Well done. Thanks for coming. So, certainly from a cave diving, caving, climbing, scaving point of view, injury robustness is actually more important than physical performance because it's kind of it, these are all skills based rather than, than than sort of fitness based things. And and I suppose the same with stunts with really, physical robustness, the ability to hit the because the most of the stuff that I say I'm asked to do, you know, I'm not an ex British gymnast or that sort of stuff. So the thing I'm asked to do is usually fairly is like run and fall over or you know whatever. So it's 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 that ability to be take a hit and, and stand back up that's important. And actually, even with aesthetics, like one of the biggest sort of handbrakes to my own fitness and performance has been injury. You know, I might have trained hard for a month, got injured, then had to like much couldn't like my back goes, my knee goes, whatever it is. So actually, going back to what we said before about consistency, putting in eighty percent effort with no injuries consistently is better than putting in 100% effort for a few weeks, getting injured, then putting in zero for a few weeks, you know. So across the, the board, whether it be stunt work, whether it be adventure, kind of exploration work, um, you know, competitive skydiving, whether it be just health and sort of happiness in general, because being in pain is depressing. Having spent a lot of my life in pain, you know, it, it's, it's, it affects your sort of quality of life kind of injury prevention or in my case because i've got some chronic injury you know, injury improvement will have positive effects on every other aspect of your your fitness and, and your life yeah and pain pain is a distraction it, it fundamentally take we, we go back to those little details that we we're talking about earlier in the podcast or the episode so if the body's in pain it's the mind is drawn to the site of the pain it's, it's an evolutionary network or system that says deal with me because something's wrong. And if that is always, always present, people are training through things to obtain this arbitrary goal, which may have credibility. But if again, if the discomfort or the pain isn't being dealt with or the weak link, then the whole rest of the system could crumble at any time. And fundamentally, this is what's changed a lot of football players perspective. You see a lot of football players that might play until their late thirties and they do really well. They get one injury and then it's repeated bouts of hamstring strains or whatever it might be. Then the way that they train changes. So they may take up something a little bit more subtle. Maybe they do some form of yoga or whatever it might be. I'm not saying any one of these is correct or wrong, but they start to look at these other things because they realize if they want longevity in their practice, they're going to need to continue to do something to to maintain that. Yeah. And, and you know, pain's inhibitor. So, uh, you know, if your knees and back are hurting and you've got to jump, you know that the pain's not necessarily physically inhibiting you. There's nothing 
mechanically sort of wrong and your muscles and are, are all working you could actually physically jump x you know inches but you jump less because subconsciously your brain is trying to protect yourself so it doesn't allow you to do certain things uh, when i saw the physio after my, the, the ac uh, ligament tear both arms out in front and i had to if they pushed down i had to push back up and the the, the lack of strength in my left arm compared to my right was incredible and it wasn't hot didn't hurt like when she did it, it didn't hurt like, i was like well it's not but yet something in my brain was clearly like this shoulder's injured i'm gonna stop you using it and it was quite it was quite kind of marked there was something going on your brain is like i'm gonna protect that and i'm not allow you to gonna allow you to consciously use it at maximum effort even though actually i probably could have used it very little you know it wouldn't have caused much problems but um yeah, it's strange how I mean, you know, pain is it's an interesting thing because it, it it's not purely physical. It's I think, um, and I think one of the problems I may have had in the past is that I've I've learned I've also got this learned pain. So my my brain has decided that any problems with certain parts of body is a major issue. So it'll it'll heighten that signal to something much much greater than actually is is true. The problem isn't isn't physically that that much of an issue my brain is telling me it is because it's kind of hyper paranoid about certain parts of my body i'd agree um i've definitely been there and probably still dealing with remnants of that as well because i'm sort of hyper vigilant what's going on in the body why why does that not work well or like oh there's a pain there what have i done wrong or what can i do to to correct it i think that also comes from very much the perspective of if you're trying to always improve yourself when a problem arises, you think I should have the answer for this and I'm going to find it for this. And that's definitely where my mind goes to. It's very much like, oh, maybe I pick something up and um, whether it's like the start of a sore throat or something and I'm straight in the cupboard, like Vitsy's gone in, the zinc's gone in, <laughs> every other conceivable thing. So I'm like, right, I'm going to get a grip of this. And it's my fault if if I don't come out of this well. And I sort of adopted that through other aspects of my life. Again, it's always that balance between like what can I control and what can't I control and I'm sure that when you're moving at speed and interacting with nature that's probably something you've dealt with a lot isn't it like what can you control and what is physically outside of your control and it's just purely what you're given by nature and what's around you yeah 100% you gotta you know when, when things especially when things go wrong you have to look at right what can I control and what I can't like I can't control the weather but I can control my response to the weather so you know, you have to look at that. And, and actually, I've become pretty good at, at not getting stressed about things I can't control. Although it means you do get pretty kind of caught up in things you, you could possibly control or change or influence. Um, but it's also approaching it with this, every problem is solvable attitude. Now, that may not be absolutely true. There probably are some problems you cannot solve, but it's kind of immaterial. If you approach life with i can solve or, or any problem is solvable then it'll put you in the right place you know i know guys who've got, got injuries um and they're like oh that's just just how it is oh, it's just you know no no no, no there's a solution and the fact i've not found the solution for the last 20 years doesn't mean it's not there i just need to keep on it maybe maybe this is the new try different things but it's like this problem is solvable or at least this problem is improvable so with that you know I've, 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 I'm, I'm forever trying new supplements um, and then go, nope, okay, that didn't work, move on, because but, but, but there's something that will make a difference. And I think some people are lazy, they're unwilling to experiment, they only want the right answer. The problem is, the right answer is, is, is fluid, 
not between people, but also even for one person, depending on what they're doing and where they are in their life. And I think nutrition is probably the best representative of that. You, you know, in social media, people are highlighting the keto diet or the paleo diet or vegan diet or the carnivore diet or whatever else is out there. And people are confused. Like, oh my God, I'm so confused because, you know, I don't know which one's right, you know, and who's lying. Well, none of them are lying and they're all right. The reason they're so invested in that diet because it did work it worked for them but it's a very individual thing and and you have to the goal but how do i know which one's right for me well you got to try them all for a decent bit like four to six weeks all right so to try these five diets can take me 30 weeks almost like you know best part of a year yeah but i don't want to waste a year i want i want the right diet now so i can well this is it but in a year's time you'll know whereas if you if the option is don't do this, then you'll never know. Which is what I did with lockdown. Um, I cut loads of stuff out of my diet, put it back in, try different things to find out what what seemed to work best for me. And that was a long process. But in 2020, I kind of had the time, a lot of time at home, cooking for myself or for the family, you know, so I could control what I ate. Much like uh, training, you know, you have to find out what works for you. But but the benefit is, if you're training suboptimally, you're still training. Like if your body responds best to five sets of five and you start off doing six weeks of, I don't know, GVT, so 10 sets of 10, you're still going to make improvements. It's not like you haven't wasted your time. And also you haven't wasted your time because you found out which doesn't work, which is a which is really helpful or what works suboptimally for you, you know. So, you know, I, I cut tomatoes out of my diet for four weeks, which was the hardest thing. Gluten and dairy, all that stuff is quite easy. Cereal is quite easy. Cutting tomatoes out of that is really hard work. Thankfully, it turned out that after four weeks, it made no difference. Put them back in, made no difference. Okay, cool. I'm good with tomatoes. But, you know, it takes that sort of effort so I can now confidently eat tomatoes without worrying, mm, I wonder if this is doing me good or not. And it's like we come back to the forest. It's a long, it's a long game. It's a long effort that wins. I agree. And it's also that the, the other things that you mentioned were don't be lazy. I think that's a big thing that I'm very paranoid about is you, you just laziness is probably the thing I haven't got much tolerance for. Whereas out of everything I get, people are dealt. The circumstances they've had are so challenging, but they still achieve great things, subjective to them, which is important. And for me, it's always just like, do some work, do something. Don't do nothing, because that's probably one of the worst things. But the other thing is that test and adjust. To me, that says everyone is slightly different. Like you said, try different things. Because sometimes I feel that we're always trying to find what works instead of actually just looking at our life and saying, well, what's not serving me instead? What doesn't work right now? Because if I remove that, all of a sudden I could increase the things that serve me. And then you've already got a better life balance straight away. Yeah, certainly you can you can simplify, make sure it makes the time and effort you put in more efficient. Uh, like supplements, like I'll, I'll try stuff that you know I've heard about that might work for me, the other people or, or podcasts, whatever it is. And I'll try them for a while um, and then I'll take them out. Because sometimes you know, you'll add other supplements that might help in other ways. So you... you what you're trying to do is, I think, take the minimum number of useful supplements um, rather than taking, take them all. Well, no, no, no. Just, just take the ones that you need, take the ones that, that work for you. Now, if that is 50, then if that's the minimum number, that's cool. Or if it's one, that's also cool. But, you know, don't don't take stuff you don't need because just it costs you money and it complicates your life. And yes, life can be busy. Certainly mine can be pretty, pretty frantic. Um, but you know, I still, I still manage to train. So the idea that you have no time to train, it's like, 
nah, that's not cool. Unless you're working sort of 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. That that's not that's rarely true. I'm sure there's people, some people who might be heading for burnout if they will for working 18 hour days, seven days a week. I hope they've been well paid for it. Um, and I have days, but even the days that I don't train, I am actively choosing not to train. So perhaps I've got half past five start and a half past seven finish. I've been working, I you know, 14 hours later, and I'm like, right, I'm I'm not going to put half past three in the morning to train because I think that's actually more detrimental than it is to not train so my active choice to improve performance is to not train today is to prioritize sleep over training but that's different from just not being asked that's choosing 90 minutes of sleep over 90 minutes of exercise yes it's a structured approach and and there's there's times to have your foot on the gas and there's times to put your foot on the brake and i think that's important in life because otherwise you can't keep accelerating you're going to run out of fuel that's that's the big thing i really focus on people as well is the ability to look at your training from a neurological standpoint and thinking what is my central nervous system going through as opposed to oh what's my bicep doing today that to me is far more important because if your bicep doesn't work for a couple of days because it's fatigued it's not too much of a, a big deal whereas if your central nervous system is highly fatigued then the whole body doesn't function and you can't think straight cognitive functions bad and especially in the job very kinetic job that requires fine motor skills and patterns again that could be a life or death scenario for some people as well yeah and i think that we can cope or, or, or like if we're not if we're not trained today but we slept well and ate well then that's still that's still a pop you know that's still a step forward and i think i'll, I'll keep mentioning supplements but it's also worth mentioning that, that um marginal gains making small marginal gains are great once you've got to that 99 percent point um but a lot of people do become hyper focused on right i'm going to take you know more i need more zinc in my diet mate you've been to the gym once this week you know what i mean and you've eaten nothing but pizza shut up you know don't yeah. don't stress about taking yeah. zinc i mean yes you, you do need more zinc in your diet without a shadow of a doubt before you start taking zinc pills maybe put the pizza down and pick up some some broccoli and some some oysters fish or whatever it is but you know yeah. So I think, you know, the big fundamentals, are you training? And by that, I mean, are you training consistently with enough effort, you know, and enough, enough sort of times? Are you sleeping okay? You know, I've, I've not got perfect sleep, but are you, are you, you're sleeping okay? And are you eating reasonably well? Because it, there's no point, there's no point dealing with, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take antler velvet spray to increase my, you know, my natural growth hormones when, you haven't been in the gym in three months. It's like, mate, that's that's not. It's a bit like that, like steroids. Like I, you know, I've never done steroids, and more because I know nothing. I don't judge people. It's, it's all cool. I'm, people do the one under mind. I don't know anything about the subject, but that still requires a hell of a lot of effort. You can't just sit in the sofa and and you know inject hostages in your thigh and look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's not, <laughs> it's not how it works. Or as far as I'm aware, it's not how it works. I don't think it's a magic pill like that. You know, it's a bit like these other things. People take all these supplements. You know, even if it's just I know guys are too too like hundreds of grams of protein a day like they're smashing the protein shakes they're not training go mate that's not how it works like taking you do need a you do need protein absolutely and it's really important to get quality protein in your diet and get enough of it to support your training efforts if you're not going to the gym mm -hmm. there's, no point, there's no point in it it's just becomes an excess an excess of anything is going to cause a form of uh storage 
because it exceeds the amount of energy you're using effectively. And it's my, my beef with people that just go on about caloric intake. So very much like, oh, you, it's all about calories. And like, I mean, no, quality is always paramount. But when you do exceed a certain energy input, your body is going to get to a point regardless of the food input. Obviously, some foods are far worse than others. Like if you're popping bags of Haribo with donuts as opposed to a good steak or whatever else it might be, whatever your diet choice is, there is going to be a, a very different approach on the cellular level as well, like how the body actually processes that food for energy and mitochondrial health, all these other things that come into it. But you're still taking in more energy than you need. And that's where people go wrong. I remember buying supplements when I was younger. I worked for a supplement company for four years as well. And that was interesting seeing the different sort of almost avatars that would walk in. You had some that were training so hard and you say, look, supporting yourself with extra nutrition is, is going to be a great tool for you because you are in that performance category. You would get other people that would come in and it was more about a conversation and the company weren't massive fans of me doing this, but where I'd say I'd, I'd rather you actually focused on your food and I'm actually going to give you some help with this to go away from it. But yeah, if you want to add this in, maybe look at this in a few months time. But I, to me, that was being genuine. To me, that was a more genuine approach and more realistic. And where most people probably stand is that sort your food, sort your health and your sleep, and you're going to see a huge difference in uh, the way your life is. And that's actually led me into the last question, Andy. So you may find with this question, because it's the one I ask everyone, that it goes over some of the things you just mentioned or during the podcast. To finish every episode, I'm keen to leave the listeners with some simple to follow routines they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. What principles would be at the top of your list to form the foundations of human health, or in other words, a human first approach? I would say get outside as much as you can. So I've got a degree in uh, zoology and a master's in archaeology. So sort of human evolution uh, is is something that I've got a, a bit of an understanding of. So. I always think it's about how, what, what, what the machine is designed to do. We're designed to be outside. So one thing would be to get outside. One thing is to, is to move. Again, human beings were never designed to be sedentary at all. And that, that, you know, that can include go for a walk or go to the gym, whatever it is. And, you know, I'm not saying because, you know, there's people in their 80s who probably shouldn't be trying to do deadlifts and, and massive heavy squats, although fair play if they can. But you just go out for a walk. So get outside, move as much as possible and and eat as well as possible and the final thing is not complicated it's not people bang on about oh the problem in educating to educate people you know educate people people are smart enough if i got a thousand people from across socioeconomic backgrounds in the uk in an auditorium and i said right cash prize you get 10 out of 10 you get a thousand pounds each no drums at all here we go good or bad banana mars bar next question glass of water can of coke everyone will get 10 out of 10 and everyone will go home with a thousand pounds right it'll cost me a lot of money but there we go it's pretty simple. If you people, there's no no one thinks a pint of beer and a kebab is healthy, right? People are people are not stupid. Okay, More, people people know this. It's not my where they're from. And I I get asked about nutrition. We've, we've touched on the fact that you know I said like we well, got a kind of experiment. Yes, you you do. There's there's, there's your your levels of fats and carbs and protein can all change. And what works best for you with kind of gluten or dairy or going vegan, whatever it might be. But some basic principles, and it is cook like your gran. Like just make food. Just make food. If you just if you just buy food and make it, doesn't matter whether you're eating vegan or carnivore or keto or high carb, whatever it is. If whatever that 
diet sort of plan and nutrition plan is if you do it by making food you buy ingredients and this is not you know although it's being pitched as probably the next big social media kind of hashtag one gen maybe two generations ago that was what people have done for tens of thousands of years okay you get some fish some meat some nuts some berries some fruits some some, some vegetable matter whatever it might be and you stick it in a pot and you you heat it up and bang it's, it's good to go or eat it raw i think social media and business and understand why i, I absolutely get it has overcomplicated this you know it's a simple matter of there's a book written now. I've probably turned this. What you probably wanted a quick bullet point list, and I'm going off on of one again. But there's a book written, I think, in the 50s, and I can't remember who wrote it, and I can't remember what it's called. But it was, it was a friend of mine who's a doctor and a research medic. He said that the, the there's a whole book, but the, the kind of praise of the book written by the author was um, eat only food, mostly plants, some meat and fish. Right? That's about the 50s. And by by food, what he meant like Mars bar isn't food, Pringles aren't food, Coca Cola is not food. Okay. Um, you know, food food is stuff you you go and buy, like unprocessed things like a fish, a piece of meat, an apple, a piece of spinach, um, mostly plants, some meat and fish. That's it. That's all you, all you got to do. Simple as that. Training, do something. People go, ah, oh, but what's the what is it? Four sets of eight or three sets of ten? Don't worry about it. Unless you're an Olympic athlete, don't, don't worry about it. Just do something. Get outside. What should you be doing? Go outside. It doesn't matter. Just, just go outside. So yeah, if in, in in summary of that very lengthy sort of explanation, I would say get outside, move as much as possible, and uh, and eat proper food, eat actual food. That's great. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you're a busy man, and it's always a pleasure to speak to someone with the vast experience that you have, because what you can bring to the table as well is is a very different perspective, but equally one that shows that regardless of all these other things you do you're still a human being that still has the same things to do that everyone else has. You have a family, you have a job, you have work, you still have a home to support. All of these things are a big priority. And regardless of what you see on social media, that that is the person that sits behind all of this stuff. So I'm very grateful for you to spend the time and go through all of these things because I'm sure it will benefit many people as well. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Andy, myself, and you may be able to hear it, my daughter's singing in the background. To find out more about Andy's work, please check out his website and social media channels in the show notes. A request from me, please also like, subscribe, review, and share this podcast as it massively helps me to continue to share information for free from world-renowned practitioners, coaches, teachers, and entrepreneurs, and three-year-olds. Thank you. See you on the next episode.